Good morning once again, and good to be with you. If you're visiting, really glad you're here. If you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be, so you can turn there. We are continuing in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we saw Jesus begin a new subsection within the sermon where he focuses on religious hypocrisy. And so he starts like this in chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, we, we talked a lot last week about hypocrisy, what it is, right? It's, it's, it's double standards. Um, that's when what you say you believe and what you actually believe as exposed through your actions and the way you live, those are different things. Um, and, and Christians are not hypocrites by default. Uh, being a sinner doesn't make you a hypocrite if you're a Christian because a Christian is someone who admits, I am a sinner and I need to be forgiven and I need to repent. I know those things about myself. Uh, what would make you a hypocrite is if you start pretending you're not a sinner or that you're, um, you're somehow better than other people, uh, or you're more deserving of grace and forgiveness than others, that there are people or categories of people that exist in your mind who you say, you know, I'm, I'm unwilling to be patient with you or extend grace or forgiveness or include you as like you could possibly be part of God's people because you're just so much worse than I am or people in my category are. Um, religious hypocrisy, it's, it's a performance. It's when you're pretending. You, you don't actually care about being righteous. You just want to look righteous in front of certain people or in certain places. And so you go through the motions in front of people. Uh, but when it's just you, when it's just you in private, there's nothing. There's no desire to be righteous. There's no desire to do the things that God commands you to do. And what, what's sad is it's possible to construct an image for yourself where you trick people into thinking you're like really solid in your faith, and you really love Jesus, and you're really doing well, um, but, but there's, no, there's no actual substance to your faith. Maybe some of you here today are doing that, and you're just presenting an image when you're at church or when you're with people from church uh, to, to make them think that, that you're something you're not, or, or maybe it's something that you used to do, and it's nothing new. This has existed since the beginning of everything. I mean, Paul, he, we know from his writings that there were people that he did ministry with and he had a high standard for who he'd do ministry with. And, uh, and he writes about how some of them have abandoned him and have abandoned the faith at, at the end of his life. Like, Paul himself was tricked. Like, if that's really your goal, yes, you can trick people. But you can't trick God. God knows what's genuine. He knows what's fake. He knows when you're pretending. He knows when it's real. And this is a good reminder for why community is so important. Community is a word that gets thrown around a lot in churches. And, uh, and sometimes what churches do when they use the word community is they're referring to their, you know, their advertised community groups, the groups the church has. And, uh, and that's what they mean by community. Um, but honestly, that's, that's not good enough. That's not good enough because you can have real community while not being part of one of those groups, and, and you, can, you can belong to a, a, a community group and, and not have that kind of community that you really need. C community, what we mean by that is just having those really close relationships, those good friends where they have a window into your life. You, you can talk with them, you can be vulnerable with them, uh, they, they know you, they know what's going on, they know what you're dealing with, they know how to pray for you, and they care about you. They care about how you're really doing uh, spiritually and emotionally and in your life. And if you don't have that, if that's something that's absent from your life right now, uh, we, we wanna help you get it. And, and I do think groups is a place where you can get it, it's not the only place. You know, you can have community uh, through, through a service team in the church, through a community group in the church. You can have community just through knowing other people in the church, like through affinity. There's a, a group of, uh, uh, there's some young families in the church, and some of the moms have started to get together, and it's not like a, you know, uh, they don't have a schedule, and they're not advertised on our website or anything, but they get community through that, through the time they spend together. Anyways, 
we're going to start moving forward in this. Um, last week, we looked at hypocrisy with regard to generosity. That's where Jesus starts. This week, it is hypocrisy with regard to prayer. And so this is what he says in verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. All right. Jesus' teaching on prayer, he begins with, here's what you should not do. And, and if I had to sum up this part of his teaching in, in a simple paraphrase, it would be this. Uh, prayer is not a performance. Prayer is not a performance. So don't treat it like one. Think, think about what prayer is or what it's supposed to be. Prayer is supposed to be when you're speaking to God. And you're having a conversation to God. You're going to God so that he can hear your words. When people treat prayer as a performance, that has to be weird for God, right? It's weird if you witness it. It's gotta be weird for him to receive it. You just think of some of the ways that you've heard people pray. Like if you spoke to anyone like some people speak to God, they'd think you're crazy. And I don't mean just like uh, using, using you know, more respectful language when you talk to God. That makes sense. Because God isn't like anyone else. He's, he's the... He's God, he's the king of glory, he's the Lord of the universe. It makes sense that you'd be more respectful in speaking to God than you would like your brother. Um, I mean things like, things, things that only show up in prayer. Using the word just a million times. I don't know why Christians decided just is the prayer, uh, just is the word that gets God's attention, but if you spoke to someone like this, like if I started speaking to Chris in the back like this, Chris, our sound guy, you go, um, you know, just, just Chris, just, if you could just turn me down a little bit in the room, I don't mean to actually do it, just, just if you could turn me down in the room, uh, that, that would be so great. Just, Chris, you're just such a great sound guy. I'm just so, so thankful for you, for you Chris. Just, just a little bit higher now. Just, you see how that's like a weird way to talk? Um, or when people, here's another thing people do in prayer. When they're, when they're apparently saying something to God, but they're actually saying something for other people to hear, you know? Like the only reason they're saying it is for other people to hear it. In which case, you're not actually talking to God, you're using talking to God as a way to be passive aggressive with someone, or to lecture someone, or to just kind of make yourself seem great because of how, you know, impressive your language is. People can get weird with prayer. I know you all know what I mean. Even if you're like new to faith and you're like new to exploring this, I am sure that every person here has been in a situation where you've heard someone pray, pray and you've thought like, that's a little weird. Um, what, what's going on here? Now, Jesus is not saying any of this to, uh, to prevent public prayer or to say you should never pray in front of other people ever. Like, there's a place for that, and it's not a bad thing. What he is saying is that your private prayer should always be outpacing your prayer in front of other people. Like, the bulk of your prayer should not be the, you know, praying before meals with other people, praying before bed with your kids or, or your spouse, and that's the only time you pray, or praying in your group. Your private prayer, personally, just between you and God, that should be most of what your prayer is. And if it's not, that's not healthy. Here's a question. Do you really want to talk with God? Jesus, when he's talking about like our, our relationship with him and, and just what faith is, he says um, the, his relationship with the church, the church is his bride. And you're the church. If you're a Christian, you're a member of the body, you are the church. It says that relationship is like the bride and groom relationship. And through Jesus, we're adopted. We become children of God, God, God the Father. He becomes our Father. Parent-child and husband-wife, those, those are close, intimate relationships. 
how many good marriages do you know where the husband and wife, they, they live together, they're married, but they go days, weeks, or months without saying a word to each other? Or just a few words? And if you ask them, you go, how's your marriage doing? And they go, oh, we're good. We're great. Marriage is fine. Like, do you believe that? No. How many parents do you know if their kids don't talk to them ever? They never talk to them, maybe when they need something, but they never just, uh, how is your day? They, they never uh, just, just want to spend time with them and talk with them. How many, and you ask them, how's things going with your kids? You go, oh, kids are great. We have a great relationship. Like, do you believe that? Prayer is part of your relationship with God, and if, if you love God, if you love Jesus, you're going to want to talk to God in prayer. It's not a matter of like, can I find enough time in my busy life to pray? It's can I find the motivation? If you want to, you'll find the time. And then the other thing Jesus says here, which is, is so connected with this, he says, you know, don't heap up empty phrases and use many words when you pray. I think that verse should be on more coffee mugs. You know, like, we don't need any more John 3.16. Everyone knows John 3.16. It's great, and it's already on a ton of mugs, and so it's doing its work. I think if we had more Matthew 6, verse 7, that would go a long way in helping fix this problem where so many Christians are intimidated by and overwhelmed by the thought of prayer. And it becomes like a, like a chore, or it feels, exa- even the thought of praying just feels tiring. Like, it's like when I have to call and make an appointment for anything, I hate that. Like, that is the thing to me that just makes me tired thinking about it, and I'll put it off forever, and then my wife will do it. Um, prayer shouldn't feel like that. And it doesn't have to feel like that. For, for some of you, maybe it's because of how you've seen prayer modeled or the way that it's been taught to you. And when you pray, you feel like you have to use like this overly formal language. You start speaking like you're a Puritan or uh, you're throwing out some Latin phrases. You don't know the first thing about Latin, but you say it. And, uh, and, and you find yourself just going on and on and on in prayer. And you're, you've spent so long talking, but you haven't actually said much because what you think is, I have to say a lot for God to hear me a little. Like, that's what's going on in your head. But look at what Jesus says. You don't have to do that. You know, God, God knows you. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what's on your mind. He knows what you need. He knows you better than you know yourself. And you can speak to him in simple, direct, to-the-point language, and that is perfectly fine. In, in fact, that's better. You don't have to feel bad about that. You know, prayer, you don't have to feel a pressure that prayer has to be a certain amount of time. And so like you set a, a goal for you, I'm gonna spend an hour in prayer. I don't know if any of you do that. Um, I'm gonna try and spend an hour in prayer. And like, that's fine if you have an hour's worth of things that you really wanna pray about. But if the only reason you're doing that is so that you can like check the box that I did it, you know, I made it, I got to the end of my hour in prayer, and you know, mine wanders a little bit, but, but I did it. That, you're not really getting prayer, you know? Just think from God's perspective for a little bit. Like, imagine you're, you're like God, you're, you're, uh, you're meeting up with a friend who you really love, you really care about, and you're talking with them, and the whole time they're on their phone, they're checking the time, and the hour gets up, and they go, glad that's over. You know, like, that was really difficult to spend that hour with you, and maybe we'll do this again sometime. Uh, You don't just pray for the sake of praying because you think it's what you should do. You pray when you have things to pray about. And you can be simple. You can be to the point. You don't need to go on and on. It's It's not impressing God. It's not, you know, it's not doing something special. So speak directly. Don't put on a performance. You don't have to pile up lots of words and phrases, right? I get that. But, but then maybe you go, well, I still don't really know much about prayer. Like, I don't feel confident about prayer. Where do I even start? What should I pray about? What should it sound like? What should it look like? 
That's what Jesus teaches us next. He, he gives us what's known as the Lord's Prayer. And so, uh, so let's just read it together. This is verse nine. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Two things I want to say before we start digging into this and just going line by line through it. First, it is fine to pray these words exactly as they are, to, to memorize them and to repeat them. It's fine to do that. It's even fine to do that in like the way it's written in the old King James, if like that's your thing and that's just what you were taught and what you know, like that's fine. But if that's how you pray, just by repeating the words, it is important that you understand the meaning within them and what it is you're actually saying, what it is you're actually asking for. Uh, it's like marriage vows, you know? Like when you say your marriage vows, it's not just repeating the right words mindlessly that makes you married and like that's the whole point of it. Like, no, a marriage vow, you're making real promises that matter, and so it's important you know what it is that you're saying. We're going to talk about the meaning of the Lord's Prayer as we go through it line by line, and when you, when you have a good grasp on what it is that you're actually saying and what the Lord's Prayer actually is, that's fine if that's what's in your mind as you're, you're going through line by line. Um, another thing that's good to do, and, and what I like to uh, encourage people to do, is to use it as a pattern for how you pray. That as you get through each part of the Lord's Prayer, this tells you, here's, here's what I should be praying about. Here's how I should be praying about it. And so we'll get to that as we move through it. Um, second thing I want to say before we start digging in is that uh, prayer is good. It's very good. But unless prayer is all you can do, it's never all you should do. Does that make sense? Unless prayer is the only thing you can do, it's not the only thing you should do. Um, this is something where uh, people who are not Christians will identify Christian hypocrisy when it comes to this, when a Christian starts praying for something and then they have the ability to do something about it, but they don't, all they do is pray about it. And that is a problem. It would be like uh, if you're walking down the street and you see a person on, on the side of the street who is freezing cold and starving and you go to that person and you start praying for them, you know, God, I pray that you would take care of this man. I pray that you would feed him. I pray that you would clothe him. I know that you love him, care about him. I, I pray that you would make sure his needs are met. You pray that for him and then you leave him. And you haven't done anything. That's something that actually the Apostle James, uh, or, well, the church father James, he, he looks at that and he goes, uses that as an example, of like, that's hypocrisy. That's, that's a faith that isn't doing anything. It's a faith that's not real and living. When you pray for something and there's something you can do, you know, towards the end of the goal, the thing that you're praying for, you should do it. You should take those steps. We'll talk about that too. That's not always the case. You know, some of the things you pray about, it, there's nothing in your power that, that you can do for it. And when that's the case, absolutely you should still pray. Prayer is powerful. It makes a difference in the world. Uh, absolutely pray. But those two things I want us to keep in mind. Everyone good? All right, let's, uh, let's move through it, just line by line through it. This is how he starts the beginning of the prayer, Our Father in Heaven. This is... Um, Jesus kind of giving us this unique relationship in how we relate to God uh, where we get to approach him as our father, but he's our father who's in heaven. And, and so, you know, I know not everyone has a good father, and this is a thing that messes people up when they start hearing that God is a father and they think back to their own experience. And if that was less than good, it, it can become an obstacle. You know, there, there are people who are abused by their fathers. There are people who their fathers set, you know, impossibly high standards for them and made them work really, really hard before they'd give them any approval or affection, and when they did, it wasn't much. And there are fathers who pushed their own plans onto their kids and didn't listen to what their kids had to say. 
when we say God is a father, God is everything a good father should be. It's cool that we just had the song, the song Good, Good Father, because, you know, there you go. He's, he's a good, good father. He loves you. He's there for you. He supports you. He guides you. He disciplines you because he cares for you. He doesn't discipline you in a way that's disproportionate or it's really a punishment. You know, he's disciplining you because he cares about you. He wants to see you grow. He's the father that we see in the prodigal son, where the prodigal son goes to his father and says, I want to receive my share of the inheritance. I don't care about you. I only care about your stuff, and I want to have it. And, and he gives it to him, and he goes off, and he squanders it, and he comes back. He thinks, maybe my, my father will allow me to be a servant in the house. And when, when he sees him off in the distance, he takes off running, and he embraces his son. He says, my, my son who's lost, he's been found. He, it's like I've received him back from the dead. And he celebrates with his son. That, that's who God is. That's the, the relationship that you have with God. And it is a strange thing because here, it, he's not only your father, but he's, he's your father who's in heaven. And heaven is the place that we can't reach. It's the, it's the place that we are separated from and cut off from because of our sin, because we've rejected him of, of, of being our king. We've, we've sinned against him. And it's only through Jesus that we get to be forgiven, we get to be reconciled, we get to be adopted as his children. And so it's this, this unique relationship that you have when you're approaching God where he's in this really high and lofty place. And so there should be a sense of awe and wonder and respect and, and, and humility when you approach God in prayer but there should also be a familiarity and a confidence that I can approach him anytime I want because he's my father and he's inviting me to come to him with everything. He wants to hear from me. And so that's, that's what you should have in mind as you're praying. Like, I'm not bothering God with my presence. I'm not bothering him with my requests. But also, I, I, can't, I can't just approach God like he's my buddy and like, I can kind of kind of presume on his bread. There should be that that also that sense of humility and wonder and love for him. That he's my father. He's in heaven. That's the first line. That's how uh, uh, what should be in your mind as you're approaching God in prayer. The next, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed doesn't get much use in conversational English, but it just means holy, uh, holy, revered, honored be your name. It, essentially, the prayer is. God, I, I want your name to be acknowledged as the most important and valuable thing in my life and in the world. That this is a prayer of worship and gratitude. And, and just like I said in the beginning, the two things to keep in mind, um, understanding the meaning of the Lord's Prayer, what, what I like to do to use this as a pattern for how I pray, I say, our, our Father is in heaven, hallowed be your name, and I pause there, and, and that's where I'll start to thank God for who he is and for what he's done. And, and I try to be specific. Um, so like as I'm reading through the Bible and I'm learning in his word, you know, different uh, parts of his character, his, his sovereignty or his justice or his compassion, whatever it is that I've been learning or been, uh, been focusing on recently, I say, God, thank you for your compassion. Thank you that you care for us. Thank you that you, uh, you know, you care about what what hurts me and what bothers me and you're there for me. Thank you that that's who you are. Uh, I'll look at my own life and just see what are the ways that God's been blessing me? What are the, the gifts that he's given me that, that I can thank him for? What, what are the prayers that he's answered? And, and I can take those things and acknowledge, God, you're the source of this. Like, thank you for the blessings in my life. Thank you that you are better than the blessings. Like, I acknowledge all of this comes from you. You're the source. James says that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The eternal God, he's the source of every good thing in my life, and I want to acknowledge that. I want to I wanna make sure that I am looking at him as better than the stuff that he's giving me. And I, I like to be specific, and I encourage you to be specific because I think it helps us to avoid 
the danger that Jesus shows us in his warning where you're just talking and talking and talking and it, there's no real substance to it. Like we should be meaningful and sincere in the things that you're thanking God for. Don't just say words that you think sound good. Thank him for the stuff that you're really grateful for. What is it that you can thank God for in your life or, or about who he is? Like what are the things that you see and that really makes your heart overflow with gratitude for him? What, what is it about him that you find so good and worthy of worship and praise? Why is it that you value God more than you value anything else in your life? Like that's how you pray, hallowed be your name. Next line of the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This part of the prayer is about the mission. Uh, for, for the good news of Jesus to spread and extend across the earth so that more people would hear it, more people would, uh, would, would be touched by it. Right? Their, their hearts would be changed, their lives would be changed. Uh, this is so important to remember. The goal of the Christian life, like the point of the Christian life, is not you become a Christian and you try to be a good person. You try to do good things, you try to not do bad things, and then, you know, at the end of your life, you get to go to heaven, and that's it. That's not, that's not the job that God's given you as a follower of Jesus. That's not the point of this life that you have. That's much too self-centered. Don't, don't be a self-centered Christian. The job you've been given as a follower of Jesus is the great commission. It's the last command that Jesus gives his disciples before he ascends into heaven. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. A Christian is not supposed to turn their lives inward and just kind of focus on themselves. There are parts where you're gonna work on yourself but really, you're supposed to bend outward. Your desire as a follower of Jesus should be, I want more people to know Jesus. I want more people to know how good he is. I want more people to understand how much love he has for them, how much hope he can give them. I want people to know you could be forgiven. You could be set free. You could be changed. You could have eternal life. And so the prayer, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, this is where, if you're using it as a pattern, you can start praying for God's mission on the earth. You can start praying for churches, I'll pray for revive, I'll pray for emergence, uh, Newbridge, uh, Grace, the chapel, uh, Pascac Bible Church, all the churches that I, I know and I've spent time with, start praying, God, uh, would you bless this church? Would you fill it with life? Would you bring people to that church? Would you make the gospel powerful there that more people would be changed by it? More people who'd want to lift their voices and their lives in praise to you? Start praying for the churches. Start praying for, for missionaries that you know or missionaries you know of. God, would you bless them in that mission field? Would you, uh, would you make the gospel take a root there? Would there be fruit from their labor? This is also where, it, as I'm using this as a pattern, I start praying for God's mission in my own life, just the people around me, that God's put me in their lives, that I continually go to him and pray, God, would you save this person? Would you open their heart? Would you give me opportunities with them to, to share the good news or to be a good witness, give me ways that I can serve them? Uh, would, would, you, would you help me pray with them? Would you help me, uh, you know, in, invite them to hear the good news? Whatever, it is. I start praying for specific people. And again, unless prayer is all you can do, it's not all you should do. And so when you start praying for God's mission in the earth, you also start looking, what are the things that God's given me and the steps that I can take for the sake of his mission? What, what could I be doing in the church? What could I be doing for a missionary? What, what could I be doing for the people that I'm praying for? If, you, if you're praying for your neighbor to know Jesus, 
that should be accompanied by some action that could lead to that. We're, have you ever invited your neighbor to church with you to hear the gospel or, or invite them over and, uh, and, and share about your faith or just pray with them or, or have a conversation about what they believe and why or opportunities to serve them, just be a really good neighbor, be a good witness to them? What are the things that God's given you, the people in your life, the opportunities in your life where you can be on his mission and are you taking those steps? Are you bending your life outward on the Great Commission, wanting to see more people know Jesus like you know Jesus? It's not only a prayer for mission, it's also a prayer of, uh, of surrender. Because when you pray, God, your will be done, uh, what you're saying in that is also, even if it's not my will. You know, God, what, whatever your will is, even if it's not I, what I want or, or how I want it or what I want it to look like, I want your will to be done at the end of the day. And if there's anything that I need to let go of or anything that I need to change, help, help me to do that. I want your will to be done. That should always be included whenever you're, make, whenever you're praying to God for like guidance or wisdom about a decision you should make and you're just not sure about it. And so you're praying and you're asking and you come to a point where you go, okay, God, th- this is what I'm gonna do. This is what I think that you've, you've given me to do. Um, but not my will be done, your will be done. And so if, if it is your will, I pray that it would go great. I pray that, that it would work. And, and if it's not your will, I pray that you'd, you'd show that to me, that you close the door. Your will be done. The next part of the prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Uh, it, it might feel a little strange seeing that there right after, you know, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come because those feel like very uh, high level spiritually important things, you know, God, God's name, that it would be hallowed and worshiped and, and adored and loved and his kingdom, you know, would expand across the earth and, and his kingdom would grow. And then you get to this part and you go, God, make sure I have enough to eat, to eat tomorrow. <laughs> but I love this because God cares about our physical needs, not just your spiritual needs. Like some people will s- so over-spiritualize things in their faith that it's almost like, like the, the physical needs don't matter at all and it's only the spiritual ones. And I think that it's more important that our spiritual needs are met, but it's not unimportant that our physical needs are met. It's important to God that he takes care of you and you have enough food and you, know, you, you, have, uh, you have shelter. You have, you know, for many people, the way that they get those things and have their needs care uh, met or because they have a job you know god gives you a job and a means to provide for yourself i don't know we live in new jersey and it's expensive and who knows what's happening with the government and defaulting on debt or not i don't know if they came to a conclusion on that yet i haven't paid close enough attention but you know whatever happens it's gonna be okay might be awful but but it's still gonna be okay in the sense that like God is still God and God still loves you. He still cares for you, he still knows you. And when you pray, God, would, would you provide my daily bread? You don't have to think that's a prayer he's not gonna answer. Jesus tells us, ask God for your daily bread. Can you imagine you're standing before God and he says, ask me for daily bread. And you go, God, can I have daily bread? And he goes, no. I'm not going to give it to you. That's not how God is. He's going to provide what you need, and what you need might be different from what you think you need and and how you want it to look, but God's still going to take care of your your daily needs. When when I use this as a pattern for my own life and praying through the Lord's Prayer, this is where I just start thinking about what, what is it that I need right now? But when I've been at a point where I was looking for a job, God, would you provide the right job for me? When I'm looking for somewhere to live, when uh, a big expense came up or a change to our budget, God, would you make sure that we can kind of cover our needs and you start praying for those things? 
you don't want to be at a point where, uh, you know, you, you don't have enough money to cover your needs, and so you, uh, you, you, you overdraft on the bank, and then you get a fee because you don't have enough money, which um, people give the banks a hard time for that, but I'm with them. I think it makes sense. I think we should kick people when they're down, and uh, that's how they'll learn to not be down. You know, it's a, it's a tough love type thing, but it's a good thing. When you pray for your daily bread and you pray for your physical needs, this is, again, something where it shouldn't only be prayer. There are things you can do. And as you pray, you should look for what are those things I can do. You know, you don't pray, God, would you give me a job, and then sit there and wait for someone to offer you a job. And as long as you don't get a job, you go, God, how could you do this to me? You pray for your daily bread, you pray for a job, and then you go and apply, and you say, God, would you bring along the right one for me? And that, that's how you pray for your daily bread. Moving on to the next line. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And, and let me go on to the uh, end of the prayer because when Jesus finishes the prayer, he kind of circles back to this and he gives a little more explanation. So this is um, verses 14 and 15. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What people, if people are gonna get something wrong about the Lord's Prayer, this is usually where people will go wrong, where they'll, they'll think what Jesus is saying is, um, you need to forgive other people, and until you forgive other people, God won't forgive you. And so that's the order that it works. You need to offer forgiveness before you can get forgiveness. And if Matthew 6 was the only part of the Bible that we had, I can see how you get to that conclusion. But it's not. And Jesus uh, teaches more in depth about this principle and about forgiveness in, uh, in a parable he gives, the parable of the unforgiving servant. And so this is Matthew 18. We're gonna read it. Jesus says this, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed, who owed him 10,000 talents. That is meant to be an astronomically high number. Just as a placeholder, you can think like a hundred billion dollars. That's what this debt is. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. This is still a big amount, but not nearly as big. So just think, this is like $10,000, the debt that this guy owes him. Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, the essence of what Jesus is teaching is that God's grace changes people. When you are forgiven all the debts that you owe to God, which are more than you can afford, it's more than you can pay, all the debt from your sin, the wages of sin is death. Jesus goes to the cross and he pays everything that you owe and he sets you free, dying in your place. That changes you. It changes you to become a person who can now go and have mercy on others. 
and forgive others the debts that they owe you without forcing them to pay because of how freely you've been forgiven. God's grace changes you. Jesus' love changes you. If, if you can't forgive someone else after everything that Jesus has forgiven in you, what that means is you haven't truly experienced being forgiven. It's not that you have to forgive others before God will forgive you. It's that God's forgiveness of you is what allows you and compels you to forgive others. And forgiveness is not an easy thing. Anyone who thinks forgiveness is easy, they, they haven't been hurt badly enough, all right? They, they haven't experienced betrayal deep enough. They haven't been on the receiving end of injustice to the point where they, they really understand forgiveness is not a natural thing. That's not an easy thing. It, it's not, the, the problem is if, if there's something that you're unwilling to forgive and you can't let go, you can't release it, that's a sign that you haven't been changed in the way that God's grace is supposed to change you. And, and you're a lot like the unforgiving servant. When you can forgive, when, when you can offer mercy and you can offer grace, and, and I'm not saying it's easy, but it's something that at the end of the day, you're, you're saying, I'm gonna forgive this person even though they don't deserve it. When that shows up in your life, that's a good indicator that you really understand what it means to be forgiven. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. This is a prayer of confession. And so if you use this as a pattern for prayer in your own life, this is where you get to be specific with God and say, here's, here's the ways that I'm aware of that I've sinned. God, you know, I've, I lost my temper and I, and I blew up and I, I, I feel terrible about that. And uh, you know, I was selfish about this thing. I was insisting on having my own way and I wasn't listening. Um, I, uh, I, I'm guilty of lust or I'm guilty of not being honest. Wh whatever it is, this is where you confess, God, here's the ways that I've sinned. W would you forgive me? And at the same point in this prayer, you go, who's hurt me? Who's sinned against me? Let me, let me take inventory of that and God, I, I forgive this person from my heart. The prayer of confession and forgiveness. Finally, last part of the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is a prayer for protection and victory over sin and living in righteousness. And, and this is something that you should be praying. Th this is... Um, if this is not something that you regularly pray, like every single day, you, you should be. We know the Lord's Prayer is a daily prayer because he asks for your daily bread. This is something you should be praying for every single day, and, and you should be praying it every day because there's temptation every day. If you're not asking for God to protect you and to deliver you from evil, you've probably experienced more temptation and more evil than you had to if you weren't if you haven't been making this prayer. This is another spot where you can see uh, an error that some Christians make. Some people who claim to be Christians, claim to be followers of Jesus. I am sure none of you. You are great. But uh, here, here's what, where you'll see the error. Uh, people will go, you know, Jesus has forgiven me. I've received his grace. I know that I can't lose salvation. I know that I've, I've prayed the right prayer, I've raised my hand, I've made the decision, so I'm a Christian, and I can just kind of live now how I want, and Jesus will forgive me anyways. And, you know, maybe I'm not gonna go crazy, I'm not gonna just dive off the deep end into horrible sin, but a little bit of sin, it's fine. Jesus can take care of that. That is called a gamble, and it's a bad one. It's a gamble you're gonna lose. Paul says this in Galatians 6. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. There you go. If you're, if you're feeling lucky, if you wanna try to mock God, 
it's your decision, you can try. It's just not going to work. If you think that's how you can live, if you think that's what following Jesus is, you're deceiving yourself. You're deluding yourself. There's not a loophole here. Like, faith is not a contract with God where you read the terms and you feel like you found the loophole, you found the way uh, for, for you to have your way and you can exploit that. Making a decision to follow Jesus means actually following Jesus. And it's true that like, the way that you follow Jesus and how good you are at being a Christian, that is not what gets you salvation. It's not what keeps you a Christian. Um, it's not your effort or your work or anything like that. It is Jesus' grace. And it's a gift for you. But as we just saw, it's a gift that changes you. It turns you into a different person than who you used to be. And so when you're a Christian, even though, yeah, you still sin, um, you're, you're not at peace with your sin. You know, you're not okay with it. You're not, you want to be rid of it. You want less of it, not more of it. You, you hate it. You hate it because you recognize it for what it is. You recognize that this, this is so offensive to Jesus. And Jesus loves me so much. He's given so much for me. I can't be okay with it. Like this sin is not a small deal. It's such a big deal. Jesus had to go to the cross to forgive me and get rid of the sin from me, to get rid of, uh, of the sin on my record so that I could be reconciled to God and have eternal life. Like that's how big a deal sin is. I'm not gonna be okay with it. I see how it hurts me. I see how it hurts the people around me. It's not like these are the fun things that God doesn't want to let me do to prove my devotion to him. That's not what sin is. It actually is bad. And so with this part of the prayer, if, if you're gonna use this as a pattern, this is where you pray like, I know myself. I know the sins that I'm being tempted in. God, would you protect me? Would you protect me from these temptations? Would you protect me from these things that, that I've fallen into? Would you deliver me from this evil? And again, you look at what are the things that I can do in my life to, to make that happen, to, to walk hand in hand with God in this, with this prayer and with him blessing me. What are the steps that I can take? What, what are the changes that I can make in my life so that I'm not tempted in this way? What are the things I can cut myself off from? And deliver us from evil. I think this part of the prayer is, is an acknowledgement of the evil that's in the world, the, the evil in yourself, your own sin that's still there, deliver me from my own sin, give me victory over my own sin, and also the evil that's in the world. There are horrible things that happen in the world because it, it is sinful and it's fallen, and even though God's kingdom is in the world, he hasn't completely restored everything and made it new, and so there's awful things. Mass shootings and wars and disease and horrible things. And There's no shortage of things that you can say, God, would you deliver us from this evil? Would you deliver us from the evil of this war? Would you deliver us from the evil of this, this violence? whatever evil it is that you're personally experiencing in your own life, God, deliver us from this cancer. And again, the self-sacrificial part of the prayer is still involved in this. Your will be done. God, if you're gonna allow these things to happen so that you can work through it and accomplish something, I pray that you would, but, but would you lessen the effects of this evil? Would you help us to see the work that you're doing? Would you help us to see how you're making all things new and, and bringing restoration? That is the Lord's Prayer. Um, we went through it a little quick because we're only spending this morning on it. We could take it by pieces. Actually, we did when we started the church. We, we, there was a time that we went through this a little more slowly, but, but I, I hope 
this helps you being mindful while you pray and even encouraging you to get back into or be more excited about your prayer and saying, like, it doesn't have to be a chore, it doesn't have to be something that exhausts me, but, but these are things that, that I can approach God with and just be direct and, and be simple and be honest. Um, what I really hope that you see and what I really hope encourages you throughout this is how Jesus himself enables us to pray the Lord's Prayer. Like, how it's the good news, the gospel of Jesus that enables us to pray like this. Because you just look through the whole thing. You just look where we were, you know, uh, uh, about temptation and deliver us from evil, where Jesus in his life, he experienced temptation. He spent 40 days in the wilderness, and he was tempted by Satan, and yet he is perfect and without sin. And he offers his record of righteousness to you as a gift, when you put your faith in him. Jesus, forgive us our debt. I mean, that's the whole essence, the, the main message of the good news that you've been forgiven of all your debts freely because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross. He pays what you owe, and at the end of his life, he said, it is paid in full. No debt remains. You're free. And just how that changes you. Even the prayer for our daily bread, God, would you make sure that our needs are met? In John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Like again, your, your, your physical needs matter, but, but the, your spiritual needs, the things that your heart is longing for, Jesus satisfies those longings by becoming the bread of life for us. Jesus is the one, so your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's because of Jesus that God's kingdom is established. And we can be reconciled to him and the way he does that, right? Going to the cross and taking our place. Before he does that, he's praying. Do you remember what he says? Saying, God, if I don't have to go to the cross, don't, don't make me go. And yet not my will, but your will be done. And he's glad that God's, that the, that the Father's will is done because it means our forgiveness, it means our salvation and our reconciliation. It's because of Jesus that we can be adopted as children of God. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me, but through him, anyone can come to him. If that's, if that's something that you haven't done, if you've not come to that point where you have approached God through Jesus, trusting in what he's done for you on the cross. I, I hope that that's something that you'd do. I hope it's something that you'd know you can do it. You don't have to uh, clean yourself up first or achieve uh, a certain level of goodness in your life to do it. Jesus says, you, you can come. Jesus came for sinners. He, he comes so that we can have the relationship with the Father where we can talk to him just like he says in the Lord's Prayer. And that is an incredible gift. Let me pray for us.